Amen, amen. All right, how are we doing this morning, Connection Church? So good to see all of you. My name is Austin, and like Jordan said, I get the chance to work alongside him in the uh, equipping department, and really grateful for this opportunity to uh, get to talk with you this morning. I have to tell you that this morning is very, very special for me. It's a special day. I've been in pastoral ministry for somewhat around eight years now, and I've uh, given lots of sermons along the way, but never have I ever delivered a message the Sunday after the Georgia Bulldogs won a national championship. So um, (laughs) this is really special for me. We're excited as the son of a Georgia grad, the husband of a Georgia grad. We got a lot of excitement in our family. So I was just thinking maybe this morning if something fires you up instead of saying amen or Preach it, brother. Not that anybody says that here, but whatever. Maybe we just say, go dogs. Can we, can we do that? That'll just be our anthem this morning. That'll be what we say. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but I am really excited to be here and thankful for an opportunity to open God's word as we continue in kind of a collection of talks that we're doing through the book of Philippians. And so if you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to open up to Philippians chapter one. Brandon kind of kicked us off last week talking through Philippians And uh, we're just going to go kind of chapter by chapter and in some cases, verse by verse. Um, Last week and this week, we have just landed on verse one because there's a few things in there that we want to highlight and we want to get to. We think are powerful and I hope they're helpful to you this morning. So let's read Philippians chapter one, uh, verse one together. It says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Another version says to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this may seem like kind of a funny place to stop, but like I said, there's a few things in there. In particular, I love the word that Paul uses that he says, together. Together, the saints and the overseers and the deacons. So basically, hey, there are some leadership roles and responsibilities in the church, the overseers, the elders, the deacons, those who serve in the church. But together, all of us, you and I, no matter what your role is, together, we're all going after this thing, chasing this person, the person of Jesus. And as Brandon opened us in this uh, last week, I couldn't help but think back to the passage in Ephesians chapter 4 that even Jordan, I think, alluded to it a little bit that I want to read for us. And this is kind of a a popular passage around our church. We really emphasize this. It's part of our vision, our mission, who we are. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says this. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. So once again, kind of a list of people that have specific roles to equip his people. Another version says to equip the saints for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. One of the things that we're passionate about here at the church is this idea that the the church, everything in the church from its structure, from our practice, that the church is not simply just some pastors standing up here or out in the lobby or people who give kind of career energy to church, that it's not just made up of us, but rather it is us together doing ministry together. We have to detach ourselves from our dependence on the quote unquote professionals 
and we have to embrace our identity. And Brandon talked a lot last week about our identity as a saint and what that means and kind of this tension that we get into if we know we're saints, but we're kind of stuck in between, am I a sinner, am I a saint? And that journey of even though my identity now is a saint, that I am on a journey of becoming Christ-like. And it reminded me of verse 13 in Ephesians chapter 4. It says this, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. That is the goal, to become mature in the faith. So what does it mean to be mature in the faith? I want to begin by sharing a story about a man that uh, maybe you've heard of, um, maybe you haven't. His name is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Now, if you've never heard of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, it's okay. He's not in the Bible. He's not a figure in the Bible. In fact, you can probably tell he's got a German name. Bonhoeffer was a uh, German theologian, primarily in the late 20s and even into the 30s. And he was a really bright man, well-educated. And when he finished his doctorate at the age of 21, he quickly became known really for his resistance to Hitler and to what was becoming the broken German church. You may know it in 1933, the threat of Nazi power was growing in Germany. And even the, the church itself was beginning to capitulate and cooperate with the German power and beginning to be corrupted by that. So there was corruption in the church. And ultimately, people were giving their allegiance that belonged to Christ instead to the Fuhrer or to the German government. Now, if you know anything about Hitler or World War II or Germany, the rise of the Nazi movement, you know that their goal was not just political power, but really their goal was to take control of the souls and the hearts of its citizens. And so fearful of German power, many Christians began to just sit by and watch as the Nazi movement and Nazi power took over the German church. They wanted to do things like um, they wanted to get rid of any non-Aryan clergy, which was basically if you did not align as a pastor or a leader in the church with how they thought you should do things, then you were out. They wanted to do things like uh, revise orthodox, ancient orthodox liturgies, so things that people would recite in church. They wanted to revise that to become purely German. So not like in language, but in, you know, people are announcing their allegiance to Germany, not allegiance to Christ. Most interesting to me is they were actually on a quest to remove the entire Old Testament out of the Bible. And you can imagine why, because the Old Testament is full of the story of God's people, the Jews. And so they were really trying to corrupt the church and Thankfully, people like Bonhoeffer and some others like Karl Barth stepped in and just said, we've had enough of this. And so they established kind of a new church. They founded it in 1934 called the Confessing Church. And the mission of the Confessing Church was pretty simple. It was to, be, to confess allegiance to Christ, Christ alone, and not to the government or to some sort of other 
power. So in an effort to train the pastors and the leaders of the confessing church, Bonhoeffer went on to start kind of a seminary, like a co-housing community to train people, not just in theological things, but to say, hey, let's all live as followers of Jesus together. And so they made their mission, like, let's practice prayer together and reading scripture together and confessing sin to one another and above all fidelity to Jesus, no matter what the cost, which would ultimately be tested in a few years when the seminary would be shut down and many of its students would be arrested and many, including Bonhoeffer, would be executed for their faith in Jesus and resistance to the German power. Now, many people started hearing of Bonhoeffer's kind of intensity and what he was doing. And so a lot of people got concerned about him. I mean, this was a well-educated man and he was out there really raising his voice against what was happening with his little seminary kind of in the southwest part of what is now Poland in an area called Finkenwald. So at Finkenwald, these people were intense about following Jesus. So people grew concerned. And one in particular was a friend of Bonhoeffer by the name of Wilhelm Neisel. And Neisel decided at one point, I believe it was uh, somewhere in the mid-1930s, to take a trip from Berlin up to see Bonhoeffer. And he gets there and he says, Diedrich, man, you have got to chill out. Like you're a little too aggressive, a little too intense, you're a little too vocal. You're going to end up getting yourself killed if you're not careful. Why don't you just come on back to the city? You can get a good job teaching in a good academy or some sort of school and be a little bit safer. And so the story goes that Bonhoeffer loads his friend up into a little two-seat boat and he rows them across the river and they get to the other side of the river and the shore and they hike up a little bit of a hill. And at the top of the hill, there's a clearing. And as they look through the clearing, they look down on what was a Nazi training camp for troops. And there they see hundreds, if not thousands of troops aligning and professing their allegiance to Hitler. And for sure at this kind of compound training ground, these young men were being formed to believe a certain way, to believe a certain way about humanity, to believe a certain way about equality, about religion, about justice and injustice. They were being formed. And so the story goes that Bonhoeffer looks his friend in the eye and he points back to Finkenwall, to the seminary, and he says, this must be stronger than that. This, what we're doing at the seminary must be stronger than what you see right here in front of you. In other words, the formation of people into image to the image of Jesus must be stronger than the formation of the world. Now, I don't know what that stirs up in you. It stirs up kind of some, it's inspirational, but it's also convictional. I mean, I hear that and I just ask the question of myself, like, am I being formed by the world, or am I being formed by Jesus? Is the formation in me stronger, the formation of Jesus stronger than the formation of the world? And so that's kind of the question I want to bring up to us this morning. 
And I want to spend our time talking about what is known as spiritual formation. Or maybe you've heard it as spiritual growth or Christian growth or even Christian maturity. What does that look like? I mean, now that Brandon talked about last week that we have our identity as saints, we're on this journey now of kind of living in between sinner and saint and wanting to be saint-like, not sinner-like. What does that journey look like? And so I want to talk about spiritual formation. The first thing that just stands out to me about our journey in spiritual formation is this, that it requires intentionality. And we get a little bit scared in the church about intentionality or anything that smells of self-effort because it's like, whoa, 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 this is not about us. This is about God's grace. God does all the work. We don't. But that's actually not completely biblical. I mean, it is God's grace that saves us and it is God's grace that he would form us and that he would grow us. He does that. But the entire New Testament talks about things like work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so there is a responsibility of us to present ourselves to God, to say, God, please form me into your image. And so it's, it takes intentionality, right? Right. I don't know if it's like my stage of life or the age that I'm at, kind of in my 30s now, and, and, um, or maybe it's just what God's doing in me or a combination of both. But I feel like I've just walked into this realization in the past few years that everything that I want to exist in my life that is good, everything that I want to be, you know, as far as my character as a man or who I am as a husband or who I am as a pastor, everything that I want to exist in my life that is good will not come accidentally. Have you experienced that? It does not happen accidentally. It only happens intentionally. I was talking recently with a group of people that are some other married couples, and we were just making the observation that it's funny that the two relationships that we would all say are most important in our life, we would say, you know, a relationship with God and a relationship with our spouse. That's, you know, that's pretty clear. We're all in for that. It's funny and interesting that oftentimes those are the two relationships that get neglected the most. You know, those are the two that get neglected. And it's kind of fascinating. I don't know if, if your life is anything like mine, but now with a five-year-old and a three-year-old, I mean, it feels like our days are full. And full isn't bad, but it just feels like, man, we wake up, got to have the kids out the door by 7.30. We both go to our jobs and then we come home. And now the kids are old enough to be involved in different sports and playing basketball. And I got church league basketball. Shout out to church league basketball, please. You know, I've got things going on. My wife's got things going on and some good things, right? And we're in a small group and, and coming to prayer nights and lots of good things. But sometimes it feels like we get home at eight o'clock, we put the kids in bed and we just want to veg out and watch Netflix. Anybody feel that? I mean, we just don't want to do anything, but just sit down and zone out for a little bit. And that's not all completely bad. Maybe that's okay to just relax. But the scary thing is when you look back on your life in like the past six months or maybe even longer than that and go, man, this is a continual rhythm for me. And when was the last time I sat in front of my wife and just said, how are you doing? How are we doing? How are we doing as a family? You know, we're, what are, what's our goal? What are we going for? What do we want to be our aim in life. And the reality is, it's because all of that requires intentionality. And maybe, you know, in the church, I think most people 
Most people love God. They want to receive God's love for them. They want to follow after him. But the majority of us, including myself, sometimes we just lack the intentionality to actually grow in our faith. And quite frankly, the majority of us are just too busy for that to even be a reality. And maybe it's because we don't actually believe that it's a process, that growth and maturity is a process. It's not just a one-time moment thing. I think we all understand like how physical maturity and physical growth works, right? You don't put a baby in a crib and expect to come in the next day to a teenager, right? We all understand that physical growth and maturity is just we submit to God's you know, ordained design for how physical maturity works. My question is, have we submitted to the process by which God has ordained for spiritual maturity and for spiritual growth? I think if we ask most Christians to explain their spiritual pilgrimage or their Christian journey, most of us would lean into something like, man, it has been a process, right? I mean, it is a day by day, just kind of has its ups and downs, has its victories, its defeats, its successes and failures. It is just a day by day kind of thing, right? But if I pressed a little bit harder and said, but how does God transform you? How does he transform your life? My hunch is that a lot of us would lean into some sort of belief that it's kind of like a zap moment. And we just think, well, you know, it was that time in worship that was really powerful and God zapped me and transformed me. Or it was that time at the retreat or that time at the camp or it was that time where it was some utopian moment where everything was perfect and I was in my prayer closet and the kids were asleep and it was just a beautiful moment. That was the moment that God transformed us. The majority of us think that it was some sort of like zap kind of moment. And the danger the danger in this is that it leaves many of us struggling, struggling to create the perfect setting or long for that moment in which God can zap us out of our brokenness and into wholeness. If only, if only we can find the right trick, the right method, the right pastor, the right church, the right sermon, then instantly we would be transformed into a new person at a new level of spiritual wholeness. And maybe you showed up this morning and that was kind of your thought. Maybe today would be the moment where something clicks in me and I experience something and I am transformed. And I want you to hear this, that God can do that. That God moves in power in moments. We believe in a miraculous God that can move in a moment. But oftentimes he moves in a moment. It's much more beautiful and theological than a zap. But it's, he moves in that kind of moment. But the purpose is to catapult you into a process now that includes spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And I think my fear is that a lot of us get into that process and it becomes tenuous and hard and difficult and it requires intentionality and effort. And so we just go, oh, I can't do this. And so we tap out of that and we just wait for the next zap. And we long for the next zap. And many of us are waiting for that from God. But my question is, is it possible that God is actually waiting on us to enter into a process of formation.
where we are formed by him. Which leads me kind of to another point, and that is this, that you are being formed. I don't know if you know that, but you are being formed. And you look at Hebrews, I want to read Hebrews chapter 10 before we get on to that. Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews lays it out perfectly in my mind. In verse 19, he says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, in other words, since God has made us righteous by his son's death on the cross, he has made us saints. Since he has done that, verse 22, let us draw near to him. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful, verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. You see, there is a let us do this so that we can embrace our identity as a saint and walk into what it means to being formed because you are being formed. From the moment you took your first breath in this life, you began a formation process. You began to receive messages about who you are as a boy, as a girl, as a human, about what it means to exist as a human, about your purpose on earth. You began to receive messages about, you know, this world in general and what it, how is it is, is existing. All these kinds of things began to form you. And that means this, that any kind of process that we enter into to be formed into the image of Jesus includes deforming the old me. You see, at some point in this journey, hopefully you've said yes to Jesus, to following him. And when you did that, his spirit indwelt you. And when his spirit indwelt you, you didn't just leave behind old ways of thinking and an old worldview and old habits, but rather his spirit made you alive to a whole new way of thinking, a whole new worldview, a whole new way of being formed. And so there is a deformation of the old you that often has to take place, right? Romans chapter 12 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So don't just give in to the formation of the world, but be formed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. A couple years ago, I got a chance to kind of lead a college FCA group. And so there were a couple athletes in this little like Bible study that I was leading. And we got to the end of one of the Bible studies and you know, they always say, all right, pastor, will you pray for us? And so I just said, no, you can pray. I don't have special access to God that you don't have. Why don't you pray? And so I convinced one of them to pray. And so he gets ready to pray and he takes his hat off. Now, I know the audience I'm talking to, and I know that that is a, maybe a practice that you have to honor God and to respect his deity. And that's great. But I wanted to just press in a little bit on this young man. And so I just asked him, I said, hey, man, before you pray, why'd you take your hat off? And he said, well, I, I don't know. I was just kind of taught like that. That's what you do when, when you pray. So I said, okay, that's fine. I mean, if that's like your tradition, if that's 
kind of what you see is right. Go for it. I said, but I just want to make sure it's clear here that you are about to talk to a man who left his home in heaven to come to earth and then was hung naked on a tree for you, took nails in his hands and feet for you, and bled to death for you, shed his blood for you. Your little two inches of 5950 or new era, whatever you're wearing there, is not going to keep him from hearing you. And so if that's how you've been raised to believe, or that's your, part of your formation process, that's fine. Go for it. I just want to be clear here that there is another formation process that understands who Jesus is and our access to him. And we have to be able to distinguish between what we've just kind of grown up believing and what is true biblical formation. That's kind of a silly example, and there's no problem with taking your hat off to pray. I'm just making the point that there is an old formation that sometimes we have to deform so that we can be formed by Jesus. Does that make sense? And so... I love even more powerful examples than that. I mean, we see it all the time in the church that people go from kind of their old way of life and they get awakened and they become alive to Jesus and his way and his teachings. And you see things just begin to shift for them. They go, wait a second, man, I used to think and I used to believe that, you know, relationships were kind of a contractual thing. And as long as you do for me, then I do for you. But then I come into this relationship with Jesus and be informed by him. And all of a sudden I realize that love is actually sacrificial. And, and get this, the world has no formation for this, that it actually, a biblical formation of love requires enemy love. Wow. That is radically different from any kind of way that we are formed. Or they come into a realization, they go, I just always thought that kind of money and power and success, that that was the ultimate goal of my life. But then I come into the way of Jesus and he begins to form me. And I realize that he actually elevates the poor and he elevates generosity and he elevates servanthood. And these are how you are formed into his image. That's a whole different image. They say, I used to think of sexuality as just kind of, you know, physical interaction. It was just kind of play for grownups. But now I come into this understanding of what it means to be formed by Jesus and a whole different belief that biblical sexuality has actually a higher view that says, no, 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 it's way more important, way more valuable. Your soul is way too important to just throw around flippantly like that. And things begin to go off in people's minds about how the old them and how they were formed into how Jesus desires to form us. And so the question is, if you're being formed, which you are, who are you being formed in the likeness of? Every thought we hold, every decision we make, every action we take, every emotion we allow to shape our behavior, every response we make to the world around us, every relationship we enter into, every reaction we have toward the things that impinge upon our lives, all of these things, little by little, are shaping us, forming us into some kind of being. And this part you may not like, but there are only two options of who you will be shaped into. 
You are either being shaped and formed into the wholeness of the image of Christ or, and I say this with as much compassion and tenderness as I can, you are being shaped into the image of the one who is opposite of Christ, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy you. C.S. Lewis wrote it like this. He says that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your lifelong, you are slowly turning this central thing into either a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either a creature that is in harmony with God or into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy, peace, knowledge, and power. To be the other means madness, horror, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state of the other. And so here's my point. Formation is not an option. The only choice is whether your formation, your growth, your process moves you toward wholeness in Christ or toward an increasingly dehumanized and destructive mode of being. And so the invitation is actually really beautiful. It's that you and I, the saints, those who are now hidden in Christ, can now be formed in the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness. Ephesians chapter 4 says until we all attain to mature personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, seeing that we have put off the old nature with its practices and have put on the new nature, we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So being formed in the image of Christ is the end goal. And it is the most profound yearning of the human spirit. Robert Mulholland, one of my favorite authors, says it like this. He says, the image of Christ brings cleansing, healing, restoration, renewal, transformation, and wholeness into the unclean, diseased, broken, imprisoned, dead incompleteness of our lives. It brings compassion in place of indifference. It brings forgiveness in place of resentment. It brings kindness in place of coldness, openness in place of protective defensiveness or manipulation. It, above all, brings a life lived for God and not self. You see, over and over again, the New Testament emphasizes that this is the work that God is seeking to do in you and in me, to grow us up into Christ-likeness. So maybe you say, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I want that. I mean, that is what I desire. So how come maybe that's not what my life looks like? Or how come that's not quite as easy as it sounds to just stand up here and say that stuff from stage? Well, one is because it takes intentionality, right? It takes it. Not that you know, I forget who the quote is by, but I think it's Martin Luther. He says, you know, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And so it takes us some effort to go, 
Lord, here I am. Now you do your work to form me. I can't do it, but you can form me. But it takes intentionality to put ourselves before him so that he can form us, right? Not only that, I mean, it is incredibly painful. This process, think about this. The process of being formed in the image of Christ happens primarily at the points of our unlikeness to him. And so that means some conviction about our unlikeness to him. What is that? Where, where are the places in my life where I am unlike Christ? That is painful to recognize and to say, yes, this is true. And then the journey of going through, I don't want to live in shame and condemnation, but rather realizing that the Holy Spirit convicting us of this is God's invitation to be formed by him. A loving invitation. And the last reason why it's really challenging, I believe, is because it is countercultural. I mean, the formation of Jesus in your life goes against the grain of everything that we live and breathe in the world for the most part. I mean, it goes against the cultural current that you and I swim in. Hear me closely. All spiritual formation is counterformation. It is counter to the way of the world to follow the way of Jesus. And that makes it really difficult. If someone were to kind of press me and say, Austin, what's your prayer or your like hope for the church in the next decade or so? I think I would have a few, but one of them would be this, that we have to reclaim a vision of what it means to follow Jesus that makes us different than the world and its culture. And hear me, not because we hate the world, but because we love it. And we believe that the way of Jesus is the way to life and life to the full. You see, the invitation to follow Jesus is not just to take on his righteousness, but to also receive the invitation to do life in a way that resists the formation of the world and invites the formation of Jesus. Resistance. It is a beautiful resistance. And one of the ways that Christians have participated in this resistance for literally millennia now have been through um, the spiritual disciplines or um, what I call the spiritual practices or the Christian practices. And I don't know what your familiarity is with that term or what those are, but it's essentially a list of, kind of, of several different things that we get from Scripture, and most of them are not commands. You don't see Jesus going, you must do this. But they're principles and they're practices that open us up to the formation of Jesus. Things like we've already talked about this morning, reading Scripture. What is that except for opening ourselves to be formed by Jesus? Things like prayer, things like silence and solitude. Those may be some you're familiar with. But I want to talk about a few more this morning that maybe you're not familiar with. Um, and hear me close. The end goal is not that, you know, you become proficient at these or that you, you, know, you must implement these in your life. Hear me. God is not interested in your faithfulness to these things, but he is interested in you being formed in the image of Christ. And so what are the things that exist in your life that open you to the formation of Jesus? 
Which, by the way, kudos to you. It seems like maybe church is one of those. So great. Great job. Pat yourself on the back. Good job. What are the things that you participate in that open you to the formation of Jesus? Many of you are involved in connect groups. What is that except for opening myself to how Jesus would want to form me through his community of people? Many of you are involved in serving. That is simply Jesus form me into a servant as I serve others. Close the gap, what's happening tonight, or maybe the growth challenges that we've talked about. But I want to talk about three real quick before I let you go that um, I think are not talked about a lot in the modern church. And my goal is not to scare you or definitely not to guilt you into feeling shame because you don't do these or you don't know how to do these, not at all. What I want to do is simply spark your imagination and your creativity to think about different ways that I could open myself up to being formed by Jesus. The first one is this, is the practice of the Sabbath. Now, I don't know if you're like me, you grew up thinking Sabbath meant you go to church on Sunday. That's how I practice Sabbath is going to church on Sunday. And that's great. I think that is a part of the Sabbath practice. But if you do a lot of reading and how the ancients have practiced Sabbath for millennia now, it was was practiced in the Old Testament. And even after Jesus, it's been practiced by Christians. it is not just going to church. It actually comes from the, a Hebrew root word that means to cease work, to stop working. First of all, to stop work because we rest, God rested. But not just that, it's, it's a practice of stopping to intentionally focus my mind on the goodness of God and what he has already provided for me. And for the sake of our conversation this morning, I want to lean into this, that Sabbath, it's a big topic and there's tons of nuance. We could spend weeks talking about it, but Sabbath is resistance. It is resistance. It resists the theory that I am simply a machine that just produces or that I am only as worthwhile as the things that I accomplish. And I don't know about you, but that is a system of the world that easily forms me and I have to resist it. It resists what can sometimes feel like the hamster wheel of life that is just go, go, go. It is counterformation. It forms in me a deep belief that I can afford to rest because God is my ultimate provider. He holds all things together and busyness does not produce ultimate happiness. So you think, that sounds great, Austin. I would love more rest. That sounds awesome. It's much harder than that, isn't it? I know as uh, my wife and I have tried to kind of implement this into our life, we got into, you know, let's do this. And then the three-year-old and the five-year-old happened. And it's like, okay, this is not easy. This is not simple. This, I mean, if it was just going to, you know, take a nap on a couch, sign me up for that. But it's not even that. Sabbath is not about simply sleeping or just being a couch bum. It's actually about being intentional. Listen, to choose the things that I do for a period of time to only be things that bring rest and remind me of God's goodness in my life. Now, if I didn't lose you at Sabbath, let me talk about another one that's often ignored. And that is the practice of fasting. Now, 
we are becoming more and more familiar with fasting because it's become kind of a diet trend with intermittent fasting, right? But long before it was a diet trend, this was something that Christians practice even back into the Old Testament. I mean, we're talking thousands of years here that this is a practice of simply placing myself before God in such a way where he forms me and I resist the formation of the world. Fasting is resistance. It is resistance to the idea that I am a slave to my desires, that I simply respond to the needs of my physical body. And we live in a world that is driven by cravings. And fasting is an ancient Christian discipline to break the power of the flesh, our desires, our sins, our cravings, and to instead feast on the Holy Spirit. Fewer things are as real to me as hunger pains. (laughs) And so fasting is a practice to allow hunger pains to initiate my prayer and my invitation for the Holy Spirit to fill me. I just use hunger pains to do that instead. And it is resistance. Lastly, last thing I'll um, kind of share with you and just, like I said, hoping to kind of spark your imagination of what could be possible for how God wants to form you is the practice of simplicity. You know, long before minimalism was an architecture and design trend, followers of Jesus practiced living simple in their possessions. It's primarily based out of a scripture in Luke chapter 12 that says, be on guard against all types of greed for life does not exist in the abundance of possessions. And I don't know if you're like me, but it's easy to be formed into this kind of way of thinking and belief that I just need one more thing to make me happy. There is a multi-billion dollar industry out there called advertising and marketing. That there is good that comes from it, I'm sure, but there is a whole lane in it that exists fully to convince you that you need more stuff. And listen, it will form you into a mode of existence where you simply think you just need one more thing to bring happiness. Just one more outfit, one more pair of shoes, one more thing in my house, whatever it is. And not that buying stuff or having stuff or having money is a bad thing. It just means I'm aware of the formation processes that are at war within to form me into the ways of this world. And I must, I must intentionally design a life that resists those ways so that I can be formed into the likeness of Jesus. Simplicity is simply an act of resistance against the overconsumption of our world and the, the message that happiness can be found on the other side of a new thing. So like I said, this is not a teaching on practices. I barely gave any scripture to kind of prove why these practices are a thing and where they come from. My point is simply to inspire you to consider how you could begin to implement things in your life that would open yourself to being formed by Jesus and take you on the growth, the maturity process that your heart deeply longs for. So pick whatever practices 
disciplines you want. The point is you're going to have to intentionally organize your life to open yourself to the person and the work of Jesus. And my prayer is that as we do this, that we build a beautiful countercultural community that sees life differently, that lives life differently, and that ultimately compels people to ask questions. What is it that makes you different? Why do you live this way? And I believe that as we do that, as we go on that journey together, that this and this will become stronger than that. And we will see God's glory move forward and we will see his church become a force for good in this world. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for your kindness to us. That you would not just save us from the pit, from the miry clay, but that you would then invite us into a journey of walking with you. Where you would grow us and you would mature us and you would open us to see you on a whole different level. And so, Father, I pray that for my friends here. That you would... um, that you would build a deep desire in us together to seek you, to be formed by you. And Lord, may we be different because of it. And may we compel people to the gospel because of it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I just want to remind you, you know, some of the things we've been talking about as a church, what Jordan talked about with Close the Gap that's happening tonight and next week, growth challenges, all these things I think are great ways to enter into some of the formation that God wants to do in your life. So I'd encourage you to get signed up. We love you. Thanks for coming this morning. We'll see you next week. Have a good week.